Join me please in opening your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 2. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we have the privilege of singing, praying, worshiping You in Your Word. Help us that we would truly worship You as we humble ourselves before You, seeking Your Spirit's help to let us see the vitality of Your Word. Change us for Your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, Amen. So the military has a systematic way of stripping away self-reliance and individuality. All of the ways that you have learned to conduct yourself through life to that point would be stripped down and you would learn the military way. And of course, that differs from branch to branch of the service. They all have their unique uh, emphases and, and terminologies and ways about them. But the goal is to craft a person that is ready to follow the protocols of that environment. As part of Paul's preparation for conveying the Gospel to the church at Rome, he is systematically breaking down his readers' self-reliance and self-righteousness. He wants no one to glory in their own person. He wants no one to rely on themselves for righteousness. He wants no one to feel about themselves that they have arrived. But instead, He wants us to see our desperate need and to understand God's glorious supply of that need in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this section, Romans chapter 2 in particular, He is targeting Jewish people who rely upon their heritage and their possession of and knowledge of the law, as well as relying upon their capacity for instructing others, and also their participation in the rights of the law. He wants them to understand that these things do not gain them an advantage where it comes to righteousness and a proper standing before the Lord. One of the things that we realize as we study God's Word correctly and understand the Gospel clearly is this. The Gospel breaks down our pride and elevates our praise. The Gospel rightly understood breaks down our pride and elevates our praise. Listen to the words that we read in our responsive reading this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This was Paul's conclusion at the end of Galatians where he said this in Galatians 6.14, But far, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, it holds my affections no longer. The world holds no sway over me any longer. I know. I know where my boasting should reside. I know where I receive true and lasting joy. True and lasting peace. True and lasting fulfillment. It is not in the world and it is not in myself. It is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the obedience of the Son. The selfless, sacrificial laying down of Jesus' life. God pouring out on the Son all of His wrath against my sin. God being satisfied at Jesus' perfect payment for my sin. The wrath of God forever removed from those who know Jesus Christ as Savior. We see at the cross the the gifting of the righteousness that belonged to Christ to the One who calls upon Him through faith. This is the reason that our boast is in the cross because we find at the cross forgiveness of sin and righteousness forever. This comes as a precious gift from God and so our boast is there. Not boasting in self. Not boasting in my heritage. Not boasting in my knowledge. Not boasting in my accomplishments. Not boasting in my participation in religious ceremonies. My boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly, perfectly fulfilled the demands of the law in my stead. This is the Gospel. Listen to the passage that is before us this morning, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. And obviously, because of our celebration of the Lord's table, we have to really press forward in this. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit 
adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. And here are some terrible words. Because of you. For circumcision is indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is systematically dismantling the pride of his reader, and I would have to say, by implication, my pride and your pride. My friend, if you know Jesus as your Savior, if you have eternal life, if you have a confidence sitting before the Lord, and you know that your eternal destiny is a secure one in Him, it is not because you, in particular, did something of note that required such a gifting. That is not the gift of grace. That would be the gift of works. And the Bible is very clear that no one is saved by works. Romans 3 talks about it very clearly. Galatians chapter 2 talks about it very clearly. And of course, you're very familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul starts by dismantling pride in heritage. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, pride in heritage. They thought well of themselves. They thought they had a higher standing before the Lord because of their heritage. Not all of them, but many of them. Jesus and John and many others through the course of biblical history have condemned the Jewish nation for their pride in thinking themselves to be better simply because of their lineage. Listen to the words of Matthew chapter 3. Do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You remember these to be the words of John the Baptist who was calling forth repentance. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord Jesus used similar wording in John chapter 8 after He says um, He who is uh, uh, free from the truth is free indeed. You remember that? In verse 33 He says this, they answered Him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free. There's so many things to say about their ridiculous statement there. 
First of all, they were under the tyranny of Rome at the time. So just like logic tells you something is wrong in their reasoning. But they had a pride in their heritage or their lineage. Now, I will tell you, friends, there's nothing wrong with singing, not that you would, I'm proud to be an American like Lee Greenwood did back in the day and has been probably replayed eight trillion times since it was recorded. There's nothing wrong with being proud to be an American or proud to be a Warwickian or whatever it is that your thing is, um, unless you think you're better because you're an American or better because you're from Cranston or whatever, wherever you're from. Because if, if you're proud in where you're from and, and look down upon others, that's where we have a real problem. It's not, it's not that you're, you know, have pride in your country or pride in your lineage. You can even have you know, your culture, whatever your culture may be. You can have a tremendous amount of pride in your culture and be perfectly not sinning. Unless in your culture you think, well, that culture kind of stinks and you look down your nose at another culture. That's when you have a real problem. Um, Paul is dismantling their pride in heritage, and then he moves on to dismantle their pride in religious pedigree. He goes on in verse 17, and you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and you know His will, and you approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. Now what I would say, and I think it's clear from the context, that Paul is letting them know they have an overinflated view of their allegiance to God. And an overinflated view of their allegiance to the law. They have an overinflated view of how they know God's will. Now, is knowing God's will a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. In fact, Paul tells the Colossians that they should be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This is, this is a good thing. When you're controlled by a knowledge of God's will, it changes everything about your perspective and your way. But he's saying, you're saying you're a Jew. You're saying that you rely on the law. You're saying that you boast in God. You're saying that you know His will because someone taught you some things out of the law. And so you think that you're an expert of religious pedigree. He goes on and he, he proceeds to dismantle their pride in their religious position. Their religious position. Look at verse 19. And if you are sure, the word there is the term for persuaded. You're confident. If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this. We're going to just kind of focus our attention on two of the phrases because I think it summarizes the rest of it for us. The first of all, I want for us to consider just for a moment this expression, you yourself are a guide to the blind. Now that is not a bad thing. Because if if two blind people are guiding one another, what does it tell us? You're going to fall into a ditch. There's going to be a problem if two blind people are guiding one another. If you actually guide the blind, what are you going to use? Light. Light. Clarity. Focus. When the Word of God is your light, 
a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, and you guide someone with it, there are some, some good benefits there. But the problem is, is thinking we're a guide to the blind when we ourselves are blind. That's where the problem lies. So let's take a look, please, at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of a statement that the Lord Jesus makes to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. The Lord Jesus told the Laodiceans, For uh, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, we can have a perspective of being wise and understanding. We can have a perspective of having all of our ducks in a row and going in the right direction and having uh, everything lined up just so. So we really now are the authority and tell other people what to do because we already figured it out. Well, the Lord Jesus condemned it in the church of Laodicea. But He also spoke to the Pharisees about these things. We're in Matthew chapter 23. Take a look, please, starting in verse 13. Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. We're going we're gonna to give light. We're going to give sight to those that reside in blindness. But it says in the middle of verse 15, when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. Look down at verse 24. You blind guides straining out at a net and swallowing. Straining out a net and swallowing a camel. He he lets them know, you've got all this information. You're you're studious, scribes. Oh, you're fastidious about your uh, keeping of the law, you Pharisees. No, 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 no. You're hypocrites. On the outside, you've got all your ducks in a row. On the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. We'll get back to that in a little bit. So not only are they supposed to be a a light, a guide to those who are blind, and yet the context of what Paul is saying to them is you're not really getting that job done, much like the Lord Jesus said. And you're supposed to be a light to those who reside in darkness. Well, God had something to say about that as well. Take a look, please, at Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. A light to those who were in darkness. Now this was the goal. This was the goal of the people of Israel. That they would love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as themselves. They, They were to be a light to shine out of the Lord, a light of the character of the Lord to the surrounding nations. That they too would come to know Jehovah God. And so often we see instead of the nation of Israel being a light to other nations, they just succumbed to the pagan traditions of the surrounding nations and followed them instead. And so here's what God tells us. While my people are supposed to do this, I'm going to get the job done by my servant. 
My servant will do this. There's no variable with this one. There's a variable when God asks a broken, sinful human to do something. But God doesn't leave Himself in a situation where the variables rule the day. This is what we call sovereignty. God is sovereign. He justly and righteously rules over His creation. So we have this text in Isaiah 42. Take a look please, beginning in verse 1. Behold My servant, whom I uphold, My chosen, in whom My soul delights. I have put My Spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up His voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed He will not break. And a faintly burning wick He will not quench. Have you ever heard those expressions anywhere in the New Testament? Yes, you have. And who is it referring to? The Lord Jesus Himself. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait for His law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. To do what? To open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is My name. My glory I will give to no other nor My praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. See, you'll remember when the, the parents of the Lord Jesus brought him to the temple, and Simeon took Jesus into his arms. Listen to the words he said Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. They have prepared. Um, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, while the nation of Israel was supposed to be a light, and in fact Jesus says you are the light of the world, the real light doesn't reside in my carcass. The real light is not even our gathering. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus is that light. And as the people of God surrender their hearts and wills to the Son of God, the light of the Lord Jesus is evident among us. These Jews, back in Romans chapter 2, as you head back there, these Jews who were supposed to bring forth the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, what did they do instead? They rejected Him. They rejected Him. When the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. When those enshrouded by darkness are supposed to lead others to the light, it is impossible. For those who dwell in darkness even prefer it to the light. These theoretically claiming to be teachers, 
They think they are in a good position before God. Paul is letting them know that they are themselves unrighteous. Unrighteous. Paul is about to dismantle their confidence in themselves. So we move to the fourth concept. And that's this. Paul dismantles pride in religious accomplishment. You who teach, do not steal. Do, yourself, do you yourselves steal? We made reference to this briefly last week in Malachi. Uh, they were stealing from God and by not giving Him tithes and offerings. You who teach uh, that you shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Well, the Lord Jesus made it very clear that anyone not only who commits adultery actually in physical ways, that's one thing, but one who looks after a woman to lust upon her, he's committed adultery in his heart. And so Jesus um, condemns them. Paul is condemning them. Now he's not saying that every single person is condemned by the same thing. He's just illustrating a principle. You're teaching these things and yet you're violating them in another area. You yourself have no ground to stand in confidence. They boast in the law. They claim a moral superiority. Paul claims they violate the very laws that they teach. And as a result, this is very important, as a result, they dishonor God. And because of their dishonoring of God, they cause the name of God to be blasphemed. Look at verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is a quotation from the book of Isaiah. He's letting them know that the people of Israel, rather than bringing forth praise to God, are bringing um, a, a, a poor reflection of God's character in them, and so the Gentiles blaspheme God's name because of their actions. He, he pretty much obliterates any pride that they should have in themselves. And what I want for us to understand, just briefly, we have to move on, uh, and I would really recommend this as a homework assignment Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 and 6 through 10, as well as 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. Take a look at those later. And what we want to understand there is that God warns his people, the church, that if our lives are clearly and consistently out of line with his standards, that we provoke a blasphemy of his name. You see, brothers and sisters, it is wonderful. I revel daily in the fact that God saved me. I have such joy knowing that I have a confident standing before the Lord. I don't have any question about whether I'm going to, on that last day, be let into God's glorious heaven. I know because I know Jesus and my record has been changed. This is wonderful truth. As part of that wonderful truth, God intends for my life to reflect that wonderful truth in this day and age. And when it does not, rather than being a light to the Gentiles, those that are outside of the body of Christ, I actually veil their eyes. And the problem is their eyes are already veiled. Their own sin veils it. The world veils it. And Satan veils it. Do they need me to help them? To veil it more? Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. And so, the life that we live here is supposed to be reflective of the character of God and thus lighten those that reside in darkness. 
Paul dismantles their confidence in the flesh. And one last area that he dismantles, Paul dismantles pride in religious ceremony. Now, we already read the text, verses 25 through 29, so we're not going to reread it. Living by external measures has been derailing people's spiritual lives for millennia. You see, circumcision that he speaks of in verses 25 to 29 is an external measure. It's supposed to be. It was called for. It's a physical marking of the body. God called for all the male offspring of Abraham to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. This is a sign that you're, you're one of those underneath this covenant. This rite was never meant to be merely a physical symbol, though it is a physical symbol, but not only that. It was also intended to mark out a people who are obedient to God from the heart. This has been going on. God over and over reiterates that there's a, a circumcision of the heart that He has called for. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, listen to what it says. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He goes on to speak of this circumcision of the heart again in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Jeremiah also, we read this uh, several weeks ago, called the people of Israel to be circumcised in their heart. Paul in Colossians calls this circumcision, a circumcision made without hands. Colossians 2.11 is the reference. Jesus warned of the hypocrisy associated with external measures of righteousness. We talked about it a little bit. One last time, please. Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 to 28. Catch up with me, please, if you would. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a net and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So likewise, Paul calls for a circumcision that goes beyond the externals. 
Because our problem is not an external problem. Our problem is an internal problem. It's right here, brothers and sisters. My friend, you don't know the Lord Jesus. Your problem is here with the Lord. God knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You see, God saw that every thought and every intent of every man's heart was always continually evil back in Genesis chapter 6. And friends, I don't think we've fallen, you know, we've changed that a whole lot of ourselves. Now, as a redeemed person, now that sin no longer masters us, there are periods of time where rather than the thoughts and intents of our heart being evil because they come from within us, the thoughts of our intents uh, the thoughts and intents of our heart are changed because God's Spirit controls us and they are thus demonstrated to be different. So Paul concludes chapter 2 with these uh, verses. They're on the screens. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. When we're born again, God unites us together with Jesus Christ. And among the many benefits of being born again is eternal forgiveness of sin, eternal righteousness provided, eternal life granted. The old man is no longer mastering us. These are all good things. A new man is provided that enables us to have spiritual understanding and fruitfulness. These are all good things. In our union with Christ, when I say union, when a person turns from their sin and turns to Jesus Christ for their salvation, God unites us together with Christ. And there's some wonderful truths that we have to understand. Um, We are credited, when we're united with Christ, with Jesus' righteousness. We're united in a spiritual oneness with God. So much that Jesus can utter these words. Listen to what He said. This... You've read it, maybe you have it memorized. It should still blow your mind what Jesus says in John 14. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. That's a oneness with Our triune God. It's incredible. This union is a benefit to all those who have been redeemed by God. This is true of those who were redeemed before the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and those who are redeemed after this. For He, the Lord Jesus, is the basis of God's redemptive work. Jesus is the basis of God's redemptive work. No one is redeemed without the blood shed by Jesus Christ. So with this union between uh, God and those who come to God in faith, the, there's a, an elimination of the distinction between Jews and Gentiles that are believers. Believing Jews and Gentiles have become one in God through Christ. Listen to the words of Paul, most specifically, Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now is that true? The statement in and of itself, if you just take it blanket and don't read any of the rest of it, there is neither Jew nor, nor Gentile? That's not true. There are Jews and there are Gentiles, right? There are Jews and there are Greeks. 
He's not saying that there are no longer physical changes. But what he's saying is, when a person comes to know Jesus Christ, those distinctions are gone. And so God takes Jews and Gentiles and places them into the same body. There is no Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female. Pretty sure I'm a male. Anyone else think? Well, those distinctions are different. God is doing something wonderful, making us one in Christ Jesus is what it says at the end of that verse. One in Christ Jesus. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 2. For He Himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man from the two, so making peace, and He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Listen, we could go on and on. The point is, this union with Jesus Christ is so significant that Paul had no issue writing these words. For we are, we are the circumcision. In Colossians 2, you have been circumcised. Well, there were some Gentiles there, you know. <laughs> How were they circumcised? Because they've been united with Christ. So you can say, oh, what does that mean? They've been circumcised because Christ was circumcised and they get credit for it. Well, that's one way of viewing it. That's great. Um, he goes on to say you were circumcised through the death of Jesus Christ. So when you were united together with Christ, that requirement of the law was fulfilled. The law no longer has a burdening um, requirement over us because it's been fulfilled. See, we've talked about this. The law is relentless. It doesn't have to take a day off unless it's been fulfilled. And Jesus fulfilled the law. You are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. To conclude this discussion, Paul talks about all these things to prepare us to be ready for the Gospel. To treasure the Gospel. Because the Gospel changes us, makes us righteous. The Gospel prepares us for the judgment day. The Gospel transforms our boasting and it makes us God's people. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your only means of eternal salvation? He is the basis of our righteousness, our union, and of our righteousness before God. The Gospel breaks down our pride and elevates our praise.